Welcome to my passion project, the Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we're currently delivering over 1 million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect in-depth conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is about sharing some of these experiences with you. Today, I'm talking to Jonsha, the Chief Marketing Officer for Google in Europe, Middle East and Africa. Born in Turkey, she moved to the US at an early stage. Her parents taught her work ethics and curiosity, and through her nine years at Unilever, she became a brand marketeer. At Yahoo and later Google, she experienced the shift from brand to product firsthand. 99% of Google employees joined after Yoncha did, so I'm super excited to talk to her about why she thinks Yahoo didn't achieve its full potential, how Google scaled so much over the 15 years she stayed there, and how she manages herself to be a great leader for others. Yoncha, you are the Chief Marketing Officer of Google for Europe and you've spent 15 years at Google, so I've got so many questions. But before we speak about Google, I would love to hear where you grew up. Oh, Timo, thank you so much, so much for having me. It's great to talk to you. Before I tell you where I grew up, it's Google Europe, Middle East and Africa, so I don't want my teams in Middle East and Africa to feel I'm not their yeah. boss. That's really fair <laughs> and kind of you, yeah. <laughs> Um, so I grew speaking of Middle East and Africa, although it's a country that uh, is in 11% in Europe, 89% in uh, Asia, I grew up in Turkey. I was born there. I consider myself 100%, you know, very Turkish, even though I haven't lived there in the last 22 years, where I've been in London, where I came for one or two years to work for <laughs> Unilever here. And there we are. And uh, I grew up in Turkey. Uh, my mother comes from the Black Sea region. My mom from, my sorry, my dad from uh, the Western sort of uh, region. Very, very different in, in culture. And um, uh, so I, I spent a lot of time in those two different, what's referred to as Anatolian parts of mm -hmm. Turkey. And it start, that's when I started to be interested in cultural differences it, it the journey and the interest began in journey the weddings in my mom's side would be like people shouting dancing guns you know firing whatever and then my dad's side would be like very calm and and, and polite and just very different in the same country where we speak the same language and then just as i was being fascinated by these and trying to adapt uh to both By the way, I come from Istanbul, big city, so trying to... Beautiful to place, yeah. Thank you. Have you been? Absolutely, yeah. It's such yeah. a gorgeous place. Yeah, I, I must say I, I was very excited to leave it to come to England, but uh, the more I live abroad, the more I appreciate what a unique history and even just geographical location on situated on Asia and Europe it has. So, you know, being a city girl, going to these rural parts every summer for three months, 
and then catapulted in my age, well, first three, then 11 for a couple of years to, to California, to San oh, Francisco, no. uh, where my father worked as a visiting professor at UC Berkeley uh, in electrical engineering. So, which was very unusual in the 1980s Turkey uh, mm-hmm. at the time. We didn't even have foreign currencies. You know, you, you weren't allowed to have foreign currencies in Turkey. So wow. all of this was like a huge um, uh, experience and it taught me how to adapt. And, uh, you know, on a good day, I feel like I'm a very worldly citizen. And on a bad day, I guess I feel like I don't belong anywhere. Mm-hmm. But the good days are far outweigh uh, the, the bad days, of course. And what, so that's my little background. And what values do you think did you take from your parents from Turkey? And how did California then shape you up in terms of values? So uh, the Turkish values would be, I mean, this is what I think of myself as Turkish values, but Turkey is very entrepreneurial, very can-do, a very young country still today, uh, 55% under the age of 25. Wow. Family is very important. Relationships are important. And then, but when I go to the States, it's, oh my God, the diversity of cultures just you know you have to, it's it was, i was in san francisco california so maybe not total us in in the, in the sense that it's, it's just even more of a melting pot than other parts of the states mm. and the 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 fascination with technology and innovation of course those seeds especially with my dad teaching in electrical engineering and there was this lawrence hall of science mm. just up the hill um, uh, from where my dad taught, and I'm just being fascinated by the scientists uh, whose you know posters, uh, photographs on the walls that I can just still picture. Although now, as I picture them, they were all men, but you know, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and, and sort of my fascination with technology and it, we can do anything. Uh, I guess that comes from uh, more my Californian than my European and Turkish uh, background. So I, I graduated from high school outside of San Francisco in Napa Valley in 2001, uh, or sorry, 2002. So very similar to your story. And, you know, I, I found it hugely inspiring, the diversity, the innovation, the focus on can-do, the optimism coming from Germany, which is a lot more rigid and much more academia focused. Yeah, it was super, super inspiring. And, you know, your dad being a professor must have taught you kind of the values of, you know, being being intelligent and, and studying and reading. And how did it influence you? It, um, thank you, because I, I mean, my parents have had a huge influence. My dad as a professor, my mom as a primary school teacher. So <laughs> there was no spelling mistakes in this family, <laughs> you know, I'm telling you. <laughs> and... Um, Love of learning uh, and, and work ethics. I mean, these are things I got from my parents, both of them. Like my mother would be, oh, it's uh, raining today. Great weather to study. And then it would be like a sunny day. And it was like, oh, it's sunny today. What a great day to study and have new wow. ideas. It's like she really made an effort day in, day out to help us focus on our studies and develop this work ethic that I think really... I'm not smarter than, I don't know, I want to say all the people uh, that I work with. There are people so, so smart, you know, especially at Google, but anywhere you go. But I think one thing that I am proud of is my love of learning that came to me from my 
parents who are teachers, academicians, and the work ethic that they instilled in me. And of course, my dad, you know, just walking those halls of Corey Hall, which I'm sure would seem smaller today. They were like endless. And, and uh, seeing my dad just peeking through the door and seeing my dad teach and just, you know, thinking just the love of science and, and maths and mathematicians and everything that came through my dad, rationality. These are really uh, shaped me. So thanks for asking. Uh, and where did you then uh, decide to study and what did you study? Um, I studied business management. We debated, my, my parents thought I should be a teacher because it would give me three months uh, school holiday in the summers, quality time with my family. You know, I was a really good student. And so there was much encouragement for me to go into teaching. But I just knew that I would, I'm just not a great teacher, you know, loving learning and being a good teacher to me are two different things. For example, if I was in academia ever, I would do research and not uh, teaching. But that was a big debate. And then somehow I ended up in uh, uh, business and then international business, which again brought my sort of commercial and entrepreneurial side with uh, my love of learning and adapting to different cultures and then add to that marketing as a major, which is again about my curiosity about why people behave the way they do, uh, what motivates them across different cultures and different socioeconomic classes. That's all just down to my childhood and my curiosity about people. That I, I studied business, but really it, it just, fueled my curiosity about people, what motivates them across boundaries. And, and yeah, my entrepreneurial sort of passions, which overtook my academic passions. <laughs> and, and I think at some point you studied at Ohio State University, you know, in the middle of the Bible Belt, famous for American football and red beer cups. Um, I spent time in Columbus. It's such a beautiful city. And I really, really liked it. So how did you find it? It must have been so different than California. What were you doing in Columbus, by the way? So my, my wife spent six months uh, doing research there, academic research. Oh, wow. And I got, you know, the privilege of visiting. Yeah. what a, It's like, a, you know, going to Columbus again from Istanbul, such a different uh, cultural experience. And go Buckeyes, OSU. Um, yeah, absolutely. Where I, where, I, where I studied for one year. Um, my university in Turkey, Istanbul University, had an exchange program at the professor level with OSU. So it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go for a master in the States, which a lot of friends did. I knew we couldn't afford it. And um, I don't know why I never thought of scholarships. You know, it just wasn't in the just wasn't in my drop down menu of well, why don't you try and see if you can get a scholarship. So what happened was a professor, uh, one of my professors, statistics professor, who was teaching at Ohio State said, you know, why don't you try for a, a master's there? I think it would be really good. And there was an amazing professor, legendary, uh, Riyad Ajami. I say legendary because he's amazing, but also uh, he was always on CNN those days because of the Gulf War in the early 90s. And he was sort of a Middle East expert and head of international business master program there. And he'd been visiting my school to lecture as a 
exchange, you know, visiting professor at our school. And really it's thanks to Professor Ajani, Riyad Ajani and my statistics professor that I somehow ended up applying. And then thanks to the Kale group who gave me my scholarship that I went to for a master's at Ohio State. And um, I was quite broke. I remember in those days you could call the bank and um, to, to learn your balance, which I thought was, wow, wow. Like so amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I remember calling the bank towards the end of the month and it said, you have 33. I was like, yes. Cents. Oh, damn, you know, and then going to the quarters, I had these quarters for the, for the, uh, the, the washing machines that I use for the washing, the common washing machines, you know, the laundry. Absolutely. And, I remember uh, those. Up, you remember those days? Of course. And uh, so, you know, it wasn't sort of an economically, fantastically rich time at all, but I learned so much. There was an amazing jazz scene in, in Columbus. And um, it was a huge campus, 10,000. I mean, I still think, I think it's still one of the biggest universities there. I mean, the football stadium, I think, has space for 110,000 people. What? It's just mind-blowing how large it is. Yeah. I mean, the scale in the States, especially having studied in Turkey, although it's a huge country, 70, 80 million, but still, you know, and then just that in a campus, I didn't even know that number. So, um, and then on, only an hour flight from new york if i could afford it um when i could afford it so it was yeah really good days and what was your first job then did you join unilever as first job no so i came back for to work for the kale group this is a holding group really well known in turkey if they're in defense they're in ceramic tile you know manufacturing export and so because they had very kindly paid for my scholarship I came back and worked for them for a year and then joined Unilever uh, in Turkey, which is then how I came to London I, with Unilever, then Yahoo, then, uh, then Google. So just talk me through nine, I think nine years at Unilever? Yes, nine years. Yeah. And so how was Unilever different culturally from Yahoo? And I know Unilever quite well. I don't know yeah. Yahoo from the inside, but I'm hugely fascinated how you contrast the two different cultures. I mean, uh, so different, uh, as you would expect, I think, if you know Unilever. Unilever, I loved for how international it was, how everybody was really hardworking and smart. There were more days that I felt I had to be a more watered down, calmer version of myself there, you know, than, but still I learned, what I learned at Unilever, I still live off today. I just came from a meeting on Android. Some of the questions I asked are just the basics of marketing that Unilever just drills into you that I think Unilever, and I'm sure there's other companies, but Unilever is so brilliant at. And then joining Yahoo, where I think the biggest difference is speed. In the internet world, and I would say the same speed applies at Google, it's like move fast and break things, launch and iterate, ask for uh, forgiveness, not permission. You know, these are the kind of things you hear more in Silicon Valley or in the internet world rather than in a company like Unilever where you can't move fast and break things. You launch a food product 
people will get poisoned or you launch this detergent that, you know, will harm people's health or, or their clothes. So it's really the speed was one thing. And then, of course, the second thing, given I joined Yahoo in 2002, so I think the role of marketing in Unilever versus tech. Today, 18 years on, I would say marketing role is dramatically different in tech and much better. But in those days, it was like, we're launching this product. Hey, marketing people, can you just do a display banner or whatever? <laughs> so, you know, I'm exaggerating to make a point, but really marketing was very small budget, sort of an afterthought, not integrated into how shall we design, design our products together because you know your users. How do we battle, you know, these challenges together? Like rather than a prime, it was more, sorry, partner in crime, it was more of an afterthought. So I would say if I were to single out, it would be those two things. And then, of course, the culture, uh, very different. American company, very can-do versus Unilever, more thoughtful, more European. Uh, but both were very friendly cultures and, and, you know, nice to their people. And I really appreciated that. I look for that in every company I work. I, I had the privilege of sitting on the digital advisory board at Unilever for three, four years. Um, and I was hugely impressed by the academic way of assessing the world. But I guess I guess the challenge they faced is how do you move you know, from an offline world to an online world without diluting the power of brand? So you, you are in this unique position. You've actually seen it. You've seen the brand era and now the product era and kind of the shift towards online. So, I mean, that's hugely fascinating. Tell me a bit more about Yahoo. When did it become clear that Google would dominate? You know, was it was it obvious back then, or was it a quite tight race still? It was 2002 when I joined, and I have this. I had. She's not at Yahoo anymore. She's a dear friend, this amazing, inspiring boss, Fru Hazlitt, and it was her. Thanks to her that I joined not just Yahoo but the internet world. Uh, she lifted me from the gutter, as she would call it. Uh, I would call it something different. I had an expat package, rent paid, car paid. I took a took a pay cut to join Yahoo. Certainly, no car or rent paid in Chelsea. But uh, but I I thank her every day for taking me out of my comfort zone and bringing me into the world of the internet. And um, it was I thought at the time that Yahoo had a very different take on the internet than Google did. And I really thought both would succeed equally mm -hmm. because Yahoo was run by media people and they thought communication, curation of content, personalization though of content and bringing a huge techie, you know, angle to that. I thought they really were onto something and Google was fantastic in search. And I remember Fru, my, my boss who got me into Yahoo, she had this slide, she printed it. It was basically straight line Google search going up, straight line uh, Yahoo search going down. And she printed it and there was a guy who was hired to run Yahoo search in Europe. Can't remember his name. And she printed the slide and said, here, I need you to fix this. <laughs> 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 and that's going to stick on your wall and you're going to until you fix it. And he said, you know what? If I remember correctly, he said, Google have 500 engineers and we have 
50 globally on search because we had wow. so many Yahoo had so many other products like shopping and finance, you know, the homepage and uh, personals. And, um, and I thought, wow. And, you know, 500 today, Google has 100 something thousand employees. So there's mm. way more than 500 uh, search engineers. But I thought, wow, that is just big thinking. You know, these guys are really thinking big. And are we going to 10x our engineers? What are we going to do? And I think if I could go back, I guess that was a turning point. And uh, I also think Yahoo hiring policy, this is the second reason why I think Yahoo, despite having some amazing people and a brilliant, very different take on the internet than Google did. This is why I think they failed uh, or didn't achieve their potential that they could have, is hiring. I mean, Google is to a fault rigorous about its hiring and Yahoo just didn't have that. You know, they didn't have it as aggressive or I don't know, aggressive is the wrong word, but you know what I mean? That mm. bar that they just hold high no matter what. And so you'd go into a meeting at Yahoo and there'd be some amazing people. And then there'd be some people you're like, I don't know what they're even talking about. And this meeting's going nowhere. And wow. just, um, I think we could have been more rigorous in our hiring at Yahoo in those days and been made a bigger bet. Hindsight is 2020 vision, right? It was a great company and I'm grateful that I joined Yahoo. So, and, and learned so much there. So um, yeah, that's my take on the story. I wonder what others would, would say. It's really fascinating to hear. Thank you. And why did you then decide to join Google? So I was, um, on my maternity leave for Yeshim, my older daughter. So, you know, I'm just becoming a mom. I am not thinking of leaving Yahoo. Thank you very much. You know, I want to go back. You know, I don't want to prove myself to a new boss or adapt to a new culture. Uh, just when I've had a baby and I've got other priorities in life and it's just all new to me. And um, I got a phone call from someone at Google and she said, you know, we're looking for someone like you with a background in classical marketing, so someone who's a grown-up marketing person, but not a fish out of water in an internet world, because if we join, if you join straight from Unilever or the like, we worry that you'd be like a fish out of water here. Mm -hmm. So um, this is a great kind of background. We love, we'd love to talk to you. And I remember thinking, ah, oh, you know, just all the reasons I told you. I, I don't have time for this. The father of my children, Julio, he said to me, why don't you just go and meet them and see what these Google people are thinking? You know, if not for anything, to do your job at Yahoo better. And I thought, okay, that's a good reason, good enough reason. I'll just go and have one conversation. And that led to 21 conversations wow. with 18 different people. The, wow. the, the biggest one being with my boss, Lorraine, uh, who is still my boss to this day. She hired me and she's still my boss. Very impressive. And, um, and, and really, I was like, at first, I think 20 minutes, we didn't talk about work at all. I was like, wow, this is fun. But this was more fun than I thought. And then we talked about work. And she said, I'm really looking for leadership skills. I'm like, what leadership skills? I'm going to leave a team of 20-something people at Yahoo to join. I have, you have no team. I don't, still don't know what the budget is. You're telling me something about emerging markets. You know, is Google really invested in emerging markets? And she's like... Yep, I want you to hire teams in, you know, 20 countries in the next 18 months. And I'm like, wow, wow that's just crazy. 
And, but if she's, you know, half telling the truth, I'm in because I also thought she's amazing. And then everybody else I met was amazing. And within 18, well, before even joining Google in the three months leading up to it, I had hired two and almost hired, like 90% hired the third country leader, Israel, Russia, and Poland. Israel and Russia ones are now vice presidents at Google and doing super well, Ricky and Janusz. So, you know, what she said turned out to be true. And uh, I'm still grateful to her today for pulling me out of uh, Yahoo and into Google. And talk to me about like the early days when you joined. So hyper, hyper growth, huge hiring required, you building up offices across Europe. How did it feel? How crazy was it back then? And for how long did it take until the growth rate kind of came down a bit? So this was hyper growth, but this was 2006. So there were some people saying, Google's gotten too big, I'm leaving, you know? Mm. <laughs> so I was like, really? This is like a super fast moving, fantastic culture. And I still feel that today, you know, the opportunities are just as big in terms of digitization, in terms of people getting the skills that they need, in terms of even access to the web is still, you know, mm. we're only halfway there in the world. So I still feel it's early days, but I was always surprised that the people were like, okay, this is getting too big, I'm leaving. So uh, there was that. And then there was, of course, just as you said, really exciting. I was, I think it was my first month that I launched with Dennis Woodside, who later then uh, led Dropbox, uh, the, the Turkish office. I remember launching that. It was uh, just, you know, going to the Polish office. It was a really, the Russian challenges with Yandex that was just so much better than us and still are today in so many ways. They're such a formidable company. And to have that in a big, big country like Russia, which was a part of my region, in a company that is just so used to being the best. And how do you tell them, well, you're not really the best <laughs> everywhere. Actually, you really suck in Russia. And uh, you're someone who's really great at search in Russian and doing things for Russian users, sometimes copying Google, sometimes innovating hardcore. So really exciting days. And I have to say that excitement still continues, even though Google is so much bigger today. I think I'm in the... 1% of people, there's a thing at Google that, you know, when you, I think I 99% joined after me today, mm -hmm. but I still feel as excited as they are about the opportunities and the culture is still as fast moving and agile in so many ways that it doesn't feel like 15 years. Sorry. No, it's super impressive to listen to you. And uh, how, how big was the growth rate per year back then versus what it is today? It's been 20% for so many years. Those years, yeah, I think I, I really can't remember. I mean, the thing is, the reason why I can't single it out is because every year since I joined has been a high growth year uh, in, in a way. You know, it's, it's now not as high as it was in those days, but high considering what a big company this is. And again, it just has to do with obsessively focusing on the user and the customer and trying to make our products work better for them. But also, again, half a billion people are half a billion, half the world's population are still not online. And there's uh, so much more that, especially that we learned in COVID, that businesses can do to reach their customers better. So we're still seeing the early days of what digital uh, 
uh, digitization can do for everyone. So I can't really break them down into years. Yeah. And did you feel that at some point Google moved from exploration to exploitation and kind of the age of innovation gave away to the age of optimization and, you know, all of a sudden bottom line emerged, you know, as a second focus area? Or was there some kind of cultural shift as, as Google um, matured? For me, this is one thing I learned from my dad and growing up in academia First, I really looked up to smart people. I thought, I just, I really want to work with really smart people. And then I thought, oh, not all smart people are really nice. And I just can't operate in a, I, I, I will actually not even succeed in an, in, an, in an environment where people aren't genuinely trying to do the right thing. So I never felt that Google moved into an era of exploitation. And I still don't because I know the people at the top quite well because of having been here 15 years and worked closely with them for all that time. And also I just being at the company for so long, I wouldn't be here if I didn't genuinely feel like we are for good and not putting money, but putting our values first. Having said that, have I been frustrated? You know, I think our speed in, in innovating on the product side is so fast that that our responsibilities towards society in terms of their privacy concerns, in terms of issues like right to be forgotten, you know, our initial reaction is, wait a second, this is censor censorship. You know, we're so believing in freedom of expression that our initial reaction is this sounds like censorship to us. But when you engage, there are layers and layers and there are nuanced ways of addressing this very relevant and well-justified issue. Now, it may be that in 99.9 cases, it's censorship, but the 0.1% that it's not, it means like the livelihood of so many people, we have to stop and take notice. So I feel like sometimes we there are nuances and, and Europe is much better position than anywhere else in the world. So I say this as a European Googler. I'm not just a Googler, I'm a European. You know, our sensibilities in terms of privacy, which are world leading from Germany, by the way. So <laughs> hats off to that, where our global privacy thinking is developed. We have an engineering center in Munich, just which is thought leader in, in privacy product development around the world, you know, I think we could have just been faster on these things in addressing them. Same with YouTube. You know, I, I just, I feel like we are global leaders in certain areas of technology. That brings with it some leadership sensibility that maybe sometimes we need to be ahead of the law because legislation will always take time to follow. And then there's another thing that I talk a lot about at Google that a lot of top management, you know, resonate with, which is you can't just change the world by giving back. Sometimes you need to give up to do the right thing. And, you know, there's a lot of shades of uh, sophisticated debates, you know, for hours within that, or what do we mean? And, but I think, 
Those are very strong values that I uphold, that I know resonate at Google. Maybe our speed in addressing things has not been as fast as I would like it to be. But the minute we lock into, we have to fix this YouTube content issue. I think we've also been recognized as being the fastest in owning up to our responsibilities and addressing them. Sometimes I just would, I wish we'd gotten there a few years earlier on privacy, on content. But again, it goes back to, you have to, I could not work at Google if I didn't absolutely believe that um, our heart and intentions and values are in the right place. I couldn't work for a company if I didn't believe that. And I know, I know from the founders, not that I'm close to them, but again, I've known them and through some tough situations where they made the right calls that weren't maybe the ones that were the most commercially best calls to just working with the leadership today on a day-to-day -day basis that I just know that our heart is in the right place. That's, and that's really important to me. It's a really powerful point, and I love how values-driven you are, and no doubt it must be enormously difficult to scale at this rate, you know, and, and stay on top all the time of all the issues that are kind of emerging, given the, the, just the massive scale you have. If it's okay, I would love to hear about leadership, and how many people do you manage today? I manage teams across 35 countries. There's country teams uh, in all of those and a leadership in all of those. And then I have folks who run regions within EMEA or products within EMEA. So if that's what you're asking, there's quite a lot of leaders and leadership thinking that I have to do day to day. So how do you lead leaders? It's a great question. And I think it's uh, setting a vision and then empowering them, a, a vision, a purpose that they actually buy into, that we develop together, and then just empowering them to, to, to just go off and do it. And I feel like what I'm proud of in our leaders in EMEA is they have pioneered in a lot of the things that are global at Google today. So the way to work with small businesses, or there's a program that we call Google Partners. That's one of our largest revenue driving programs in the world. And it came out of Europe or digital skills. You know, we thought digital skills and investing in digital skills was the biggest way we could give back, not just in the use of our products in a way that's self-serving, but in a way that would help people to find jobs. And it started in Spain, um, Uh, with uh, uh, Christelle and my team and her team there. And it's gone global now. We've trained 70 million. We've pledged to train 10 more million. So I think there's a lot of innovation that comes out of, uh, again, in privacy. I have another call today about that. And my team in Germany, the team in Europe, the way we approach privacy, always, you know, how we can do better. These are all opportunities or challenges that have been addressed from within Europe and my team. Uh, and I'm really, really proud of that. You should be. I mean, it's such such an, a massive success story and it's um, enormously impressive what you've accomplished over 15, 16 years at Google. And what have you learned about yourself in terms of leadership? You know, what gives you energy? What takes energy? How did you learn how to manage yourself? 
That's a great question and an ongoing one, I think. <laughs> really, I mean, I'm still asking myself that question. For example, sometimes, you know, I talk about setting a vision and empowering, but that's a constant effort. So constantly learning, is that the most inspiring vision? And am I really empowering or am I just uh, micromanaging, which then has effects on my energy? I mean, I'm, I really need to sleep. Sleep is like a huge thing for me. Anyone who knows me well knows that I can talk about it for hours. I have this air mattress in the office <laughs> that uh, <laughs> I have a little decorative cushion. It looks like it's decoration. It's actually my napping pillow that I put nice. on the air mattress. And uh, just, you know, uh, there's a nap pod that, on our floor, but it's always booked. And I sort of, you know, so I, I, I try to practice and preach about the importance of whatever is important to get you to feel your best self. I do a lot of walking uh, meetings. Like I, I have to walk an hour and a half every day. I live next to Battersea Park. And um, this has been my COVID routine. I couldn't do this before. And uh, so I, it used to be, I used to do it after work hours when the days were long, but now I can't. So I've got my beanie hat and I'm overdressed and I'm on these <laughs> video calls with the team. And uh, sometimes I have things printed out if they wanted me to look at something in the meeting. And I'm having these calls, which are probably annoying some uh, uh, walkers in the park. But, you know, it's just what I really uh, go out of my way to take care of my well-being because surprise, surprise, the more rested and uh, exercised I am, the better version of myself I am. And I don't think I really took care of that as much before COVID. So it's definitely something I want to uh, take forward. Yeah, and I really subscribe to this idea that, you know, in order to lead other people, you really have to learn how to manage yourself. So I think it's a powerful point you're making. And you also sit on a couple of boards. Um, what do you think makes a board great? Great can be different for a lot of people. So there's there's a lot of research that I think and thoughtfulness that needs to go into before taking a board position, the amount of uh, paperwork, if it's a publicly listed large company, the responsibilities, the education that you might need before joining a board the first time. But really, as with everything else in life that I've learned, I've never had a master plan. I don't have a major board experience advice. But the one thing that I've uh, followed in, in my life is my heart and great people. And really just does the company and what it's trying to do excite you? Do the people really excite you? And if you are a digital person or a woman, do they really want to listen to you or are they ticking a box? That would be my follow great people and make sure that if, if you're digital and a candidate from a diverse or a minority group, make sure that, that they will listen to you once they hire you, which has been my experience, definitely, but it's something that I don't take for granted and I'm really grateful for my own board experiences for that. It's a great point. And 
If you look back over you know, the last 20 years of your career, you've been so successful. What would you say has been the secret Yoncha sauce? <laughs> you know, what, what made you so successful? And I'm really sorry for putting you on the spot. You are clearly extremely intelligent. But what would you say in your own words? So glad you can't see me blushing right now. <laughs> um, but I have just been through this training called I Am Remarkable because apparently women and girls are less comfortable talking about their achievements than um, uh, men are uh, So and it, because it's considered bragging. So I mustn't shy away from this question. Uh, I owe it to uh, uh, all the women out there that are looking up to me to say something profound. But really, uh, actually, I think it goes back to everything that I've achieved in life. It goes back to hard work, not at the expense of fun. Anyone who knows me will mm -hmm. vouch for that. <laughs> but um, that work ethic, you know, I really put in a lot of work into something I put my mind into. But what also I talk a lot to my team is your convictions. What are your convictions? Because I, whenever I've done something successful or that is big today, the roots are there are some humiliation, some challenges, you know, digital skills, Yonja, we're not in the, uh, in the, in the business of education. Why do you think digital skills is a, oh, and yeah, you know, it may have worked in your emerging markets, but yeah, this in the mm -hmm. UK or Germany. You know. So I've always faced some, it could be challenge, or it could be humiliation is too much of a word. I'm using it to make a point that it's not always easy. What seems as obvious successful programs today, they had their big challenges, like, or there was no budget for it because it wasn't really marketing a single product. In the case of digital skills, we were saying we should train people beyond Google's products. How do you get budget for something like that? It wasn't part of annual planning, doesn't fit into any specific business objective. Everything I've done, and I could go back to give examples in the Unilever days, everything I've done I've had major convictions. Somehow it's my gut feel and my curiosity and knowing there's a, there's a Venn diagram of, I know this is gonna address a big need for our customers or users. And I know that it's gonna be good for Google. Sometimes I can't express it. You know, I can't put all the charts and data behind it. I'm quite a gut person, but I know that I have really strong convictions rooted in knowing my customers and Google. And there's that gut feel, that Venn diagram, there's no stopping me. I mean, there's really no stopping me when I've locked on to those convictions. So it's not just about hard work. I, I really want to start with that. Not hard, but disciplined work. But it's really like, what will give you those convictions? That's the common denominator in everything I've done so far. Conviction and work ethics, great. Yoncha, thank you so much. I think Google is extremely lucky to have you. I love your passion, your values, your curiosity. Thank you so much for sharing so openly. You're so kind to, to even have me on this podcast and, and, and ask me all these questions. I really enjoyed it. And we have so much in common with our high school and uh, Europe to US experience and Ohio that I didn't know before. So really enjoyed talking to you too, Timo. Thanks a lot.